0: this is the Curious Climber podcast and you're listening to Hazel Findlay. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with John Kettle, who is a movement coach and a guide based in the Lake District in England. He's written a book called called Rock Climbing Technique and he's been coaching movement and technique for over 20 years now. We start off by chatting a little bit about his own personal story and what led him to become a coach. Um, We talk about why we don't focus more on movement and technique and why there seems to be a bit of an imbalance around physical training versus actually practicing movement, especially given how climbing is such a, a complex movement based sport. We discuss the main areas where people tend to go wrong in this regard talk about the difference between elite climbers versus beginners, we talk about different drills that people can do to improve their movement and technique, and efficiency on the wall. We talk about the role of mind and attention when it comes to either climbing well and also learning how to climb well, and also the role of stress and how that can affect our movement. We also look at the ego and why it's so much harder to be told that you move badly rather than that you're weak. Uh, We also talk about flexibility, breath, conscious awareness, and holding tension in the body. So we really go into a lot of things. This is this is a very climbing based podcast, which is actually a little bit unusual for the Curious Climbing Podcast, but it's about a very interesting area of climbing that probably doesn't get talked about enough so i really hope you enjoy this one great okay hi john welcome Hello. to the podcast thank you <laughs> good to chat to you um yeah we've just met so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, the, there's that to think about uh usually i know people a bit more before we do um a recording but i do know you by reputation is what yeah, I'd, I'd say so. you okay. know if, if anyone mentions anything about movement coaching they'll say John Kettle so not to just (laughs) interesting no pressure then (laughs) yeah yeah um so I don't know a lot about your kind of personal story so we could just maybe start with that and tell the listeners kind of you know how long have you been climbing and what your kind of journey looked like into movement coaching
1: yeah okay um so I um I started climbing about um 20 Five years ago, I think, uh, as a sixteen-year-old, um, so I was a f- relatively late in terms of in my develop physical development for starting climbing, but um, I was already really keen on a lot of outdoor sports. So it was like for me, it was like another adventure opportunity. Really, I was a mountain biker and a climber, um, a kayaker, I guess, at the time when I started climbing, um, and um, and I climbed really enthusiastically for about uh 15 years from there really till the end of my 20s and uh, and gave everything to it really um uh, when I when I graduated from university I decided to drop my career as a designer that I had planned and work in the mountains instead so I could climb uh for a living and yeah worked as an instructor doing that for about a decade um but near the end of my 20s um the cumulative effect of climbing a lot and not climbing very well and not really looking after myself started to add up so um, when I was about 28 I think I um, tore one of my rotator cuffs I got a label tear I think you, you're you familiar with those yeah, yeah. <laughs> not the best uh, not the best those things and um, then about a year later I got another one in the other shoulder um, and yeah there was there ended up being a large period of downtime from kind of climbing as I wanted to really while I was trying to get those properly diagnosed or or sorted out. And so I was still climbing uh, fairly regularly, but I couldn't really push my grade or climb how I wanted to. I couldn't really um, progress, which was really frustrating. And yeah, there was a big shift for me during that process in that I'd reached a kind of point of desperation where I was thinking about leaving the outdoor mountaineering industry and stopping climbing because my shoulders were just giving me so much pain if I climbed more than about once a week Um, and I decided to look at my technique at that point to see if there was anything about my technique which was um, which had potential to improve because it was one of the few things I could work on because I couldn't get fit or strong or anything like that Um, and yeah and at that point I guess aged about 28 I had a bit of a like road to Damascus experience where I realised my technique was really bad. And, um, and I had loads of potential to get loads better. Um, or at least I, I thought I did. Um, yeah, so I kind of explored that. And, um, and two more years passed of exploring that and really just putting in the miles of practising, but not being able to uh, apply that to, to harder climbing because I was still injured. So it took about four years from start to finish from my first shoulder injury through to having had surgery to both. To have them repaired, so four years of kind of downtime, and basically a huge amount of technique work, but only at a low level, at a low intensity, and low frequency. Um, and then coming out the end of that, um, I kind of rocketed up the grades. It was I, I progressed much further than I thought I actually would. So um, that spurred me really to to give a lot more weight to technique and a lot more value to it, because. No one had ever said to me anything about proving technique before that, and I hadn't given it really much, much mind or time. Uh, yeah, so, so that, that, and that also pushed me into coaching, I guess. At that point, I was a mountaineering instructor, and I'd done a lot of coaching through whitewater kayaking and other things. Um, so I had a lot of coaching knowledge, and I really liked coaching theory and applying it, and climbing was my passion. So at that point, I decided that people needed to know about this stuff and kind of set my stall out as a as a climbing coach, and I guess although I didn't really plan it um I became like a technique evangelist <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and just really focused on technique and For about the first five years of that coaching, as the business grew, um I was really focused on technique, and then i I guess i didn't want to become just a specialist in that one thing because there's many facets to climbing, so I broadened out after that, and I've been coaching like mm-hmm independently now for, uh, about 10 or 15 years, I think. Um, so I coach all sorts, but yeah, I'm best known for the technique side of things. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's a great story. I'm interested to hear, you know, what was it like when, like, well, firstly, sort of how did you decide that it was technique that you'd work on? Cause obviously to decide, oh, I want to work on my technique is also to accept there's room for growth. And, you know, what did it feel like the moment, you know, was there a particular moment when you realised like, oh, actually, this is a quite a big area of weakness for me. And was that a bit of a knock to the ego? You know, what, what was that like?
1: I think, um, I think it would have been a knock to the ego. It wasn't much of a knock to the ego, I think, because I was so desperate to find a way to to keep climbing. And I was just desperate for Yeah, I was just looking desperately for ways to find kind of, Find enjoyment in my climbing, um, which didn't come from getting fitter or stronger, uh, which at the time was as far as I could see was the only route to improvement. So I think in that state of desperation, I would take anything, and it didn't matter that it was like that. It was that it was a. It was obviously feedback in terms of it told me how bad I'd been in the past. It didn't really bother me. Had you come to me before I was injured, I think in my twenties, and said your technique's terrible, John, I definitely wouldn't have liked that like it would have yeah. hurt it would have hurt yeah definitely It would have upset me because you know climbing was my baby and I was totally devoted to climbing and yeah. i would made all my life choices around rock climbing so it would have really stung but I just got into such a difficult place with injury that um it was just like a such a good discovery it was just like discovering a gold mine and being like oh wow um yeah there's so much potential here and then I just started going on this really rewarding journey where the more I explored it the better I got and it just carried on in this kind of virtuous circle of exploring and reward and then once the surgeries were over with the shoulders then just this like explosion in terms of my grades um just just yeah just absolutely cemented everything I thought I'd learned during that and it brought me it got me even more buy-in so I kind of Right. Yeah, Yeah, it was just like, I just went mad for it, basically. Okay, cool. (laughs) Um,
0: It is weird how, you know, you sort of said in your 20s, if someone had told you your technique was crap, it would have been a big knock. It's strange how, because I know personally... I do really believe my technique isn't my biggest weakness. But if someone came to me and said that it was, yeah. I take that so much more personally than if they said you're weak. Right, it's yeah. strange. And I think other climbers feel the same, right? Like hearing like that someone say, oh, you know, you could work on your strength or you could, you know, your fingers aren't that strong. You know, it's something we don't take as personally as hearing... Oh, you know you could have climbed that way more efficiently you you know you you really didn't move very well on that boulder problem but it's strange because both require dedication right they yeah. just they just require input of time and energy and attention yeah. so why is it we take that so more personally than comments on our strength or fitness
1: i don't know it's, it's, it's a good question i think um Part of it's down to how we perceive ourselves. Like a lot of climbers personally see themselves as, as the weak one who just gets away with their the grade they climb. So when someone says they're weak, they, they're already identifying with that and they're like, okay, that's okay. I know I could get stronger. Mm-hmm. And strength is so easily easy to measure and mm-hmm. easy to compare to others. So you're always aware that there's really strong people out there. You're not mm-hmm. as strong as. And it doesn't really matter who you are in the world. You know it's pretty easy to find someone out there who's stronger and we can look mm. at the best climbers in the world you know like the Migoses and the Ondras and we can find someone much stronger than them in pretty much every measure so I think it's hard to deny that you could always be stronger so mm. people can kind of take that feedback to some extent um, even if they pride themselves on being strong mm. and I would say when I was in my 20s i I would pride myself on being strong mm. and people still tell me I'm strong and I feel slightly embarrassed because I'm like, Oh, in some ways I don't feel like I've earned it. Uh, right. I feel like I was just dealt a good hand for strength in terms of genetics. And actually mm. that's part of the reason I had such bad technique. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you come into climbing really physically strong already, mm. you're in a really um, dodgy position in terms of the, ch- the odds of you forming poor mm. technique early because you've got so much strength to spare. Um, I think is significantly higher than if you come into climbing week at the start.
0: Yeah, and I don't know if you've noticed this, but I do see a bit of a gender divide there, because, you know, I've been climbing since forever, right? Hmm. But, and I've watched, you know, young men come into climbing. Yeah. And all of a sudden down the climbing wall, they're climbing better than me, you know, after like the first year, and I'm just like, oh my God. Yeah. but then, you know, they get so strong so fast. It's like, to me, it's just sort of, it's hard for me to even, like, comprehend, like, how strong they're getting so quickly. Yeah, yeah. But then I'm noticing, like, oh, wait, they're still really front on. And it's almost as if some of them might benefit from not doing, from doing less strength training to begin with. Yeah. Because it's so hard to tell your body to not pull really hard when it can pull really hard.
1: Yeah, definitely. And
0: I think I've watched other young women come into the sport and they've not had those strength gains so quickly. Some have. Yeah. Obviously, this is being very generalised, but in general, you'd notice that more with men, I think.
1: I think so, yeah. There's a certain profile of your classic, like, strong young man who's, like, just, yeah just can apply their strength pretty well and they learn to apply it well so for me as a climber in my 20s my bouldering grade was always way higher than my sport or trad grade relatively speaking because I could just drag myself up stuff Um, but actually yeah it just meant I had a great deal of like rewiring work if you like to do to learn to use that strength well and when I learnt to use it better and I still wouldn't say I use it as best I could I'd definitely squander it still relative to people I climb with who are weaker than me and climb as well or harder than me. But as I learnt to use it better, I was rewarded for it. And Mm -hmm. and it it felt like that strength I've been gifted, I could actually make good use of. Mm -hmm. So, you know, although my bouldering grades were always significantly higher than my sport and trad grades, when I moved better, all the grades went up and my bouldering grades are still significantly higher than my sport and trad grades. I think just because of my physiology Um, and, uh, but yeah, but they moved up at the same rate as the others. So I got rewarded in the strength I had, I got to use at much higher grades. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think um, just going back a little bit to that whole sort of why we take offence to people criticising our movement, it's for me, it's like somewhat connected to this idea that the way we move is somewhat innate. It's like a yeah. talent-based thing, yeah. whereas strength is like a hard work-based thing, which is totally incorrect, right, from what we know about all this stuff. I mean, for, obviously genetics plays a role in your movement skills, but also in your strength. Yeah. But for most, for both, it's like, especially movement, it's mostly about practice, right?
1: It is, yeah. And I, I think you're right that people see, um, see their technique as like their fin- individual fingerprint. Uh, or it's a bit like their appearance. So if you criticise mm. their appearance, they're not going to take it so well. And it's a bit, a bit the same with your technique. It's like saying you don't look good. You know, if you, if you criticise someone's how they move. Yeah. So that's I think it's part of the reason you can take it pretty hard. Um. And, as you say, technique is 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 a combination of a couple of things, but I think. We, you, everyone will look different no matter how much they work on their technique and, and polish it and refine it every elite climber looks different on the rock in mm. terms of the way they move so it always remains completely unique and a product of your environment and your genetics and your unique physiology your joints all those things mm. and the the kind of movement culture you grew up in in terms of what you did with your body outside of climbing or before climbing So it's all those things combined and then you add practice into that and that's what the kind of polishing and refining process that gives you the best technique for you. But it's not necessarily going to be the same as everyone else at that standard. So it's always, everyone's technique is going to look different and I think that's part of the reason um, it's really hard to compare yourself to others Mm. and measure yourself up against others because you're never going to look exactly the same.
0: Totally, yeah. And like personally, I see that all the time because I've got really bendy hips yeah like can, they're really open so i can climb front on in a way that if anyone else did it it would be really bad technique right because yeah, the ass yeah. would be so far from the wall <laughs> yeah Yeah. You know, so sometimes i'm not sort of crabbing up the wall like a beginner would you know yeah, yeah. but it sort of works because works i you, can yeah. get my weight above my feet yeah um, and yeah. so yeah everyone is different and obviously being short i mean you're are you fairly short or what yeah
1: i'm five four
0: Right, okay, yeah, so so I'm a short.
1: certified shorty, I think.
0: Yeah. How do you feel like that fits into all this? Like, have you, what things have you learned from being being a shorty?
1: Um, I think um, I think the the pathway of your technique. It's a bit like being strong versus weak. If you look at the grade progression rate, so if you're strong, you tend to shoot up the grades, particularly in bouldering and more strength based disciplines, and then hit a plateau. And your plateau is much higher than your average person who maybe goes much more gradually up um, and they have to work on that technique and they gain, gain strength more gradually before they reach the level you're at. And it's the same, I think, with being short. You hit a plateau where you need a wider range of technical movement skills a little bit earlier than someone who is at the other end of the spectrum and really tall. So they might hit that plateau further on. Whereas you hit a hit a point earlier on in your climbing grades where you have to learn to do things like step really, really high and get really, really mm-hmm. bunched, build your feet up a lot, you know, make limit reaches. Um, so yeah, I think you just, you just meet that point earlier in your progression. Um, and then uh, you have to find a way over that plateau if you want to carry on going. And I think tall people have the same issue, but they just have it at a slightly different grade level really. Right. But they still get stuck yeah. on the same plateau and you know, have to have to work on those things um, to progress.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've noticed that some of the best climbers I know are people who started when they were young, especially men, who learnt to climb as a short, bendy kid. Right. Yeah. Retained some of their flexibility, but then grew to be quite tall. Yeah. Because they've got all of the short person repertoire still from when they were kids but all now the tall person repertoire as well. And yeah. I feel like, wow, like there a sort of Ryan Pascal comes to mind. Yeah. You know, he's quite tall, but he can bend like he, and and you get his feet high as if he was Brilliant. still like 11 yeah. years old, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, no, that's really, that's a really good asset. Yeah. There's a lot of like short person styles of movement that I think tall people can really benefit from. Yeah. You know, and there's pros and cons to being at both ends of the spectrum, definitely.
0: Yeah. And what do you think about flexibility? Because obviously, I mean, I util- utilize my flexibility so much, and I really can pick up on people whose flexibility is letting them down. You know, what would you say to people? Like, how much time would you invest in flexibility, and how much importance do you put it, put on it in your coaching? Or would you say it's if you're not as flexible, would you just adopt a different movement style? Uh,
1: that's a good question. I think um, I think flexibility is a really big factor. Uh, and I particularly think hip, hip flexibility for most people is a, is is one of those things that if you could improve it, everything would improve about your climbing, your mm. performance would improve. So uh, I'm always an advocate of, of engaging with the process of improving hip flexibility. Um, shoulder flexibility is the kind of other area, and I guess general spinal health, which relates often to shoulder flexibility. Um, that one for me is a little bit more like there's a, there's a a certain amount you need and benefit from, and beyond that, it's a bonus to have more, but it's not going to be a game changer necessarily. So I do meet some older climbers who have, and older folk in general actually, who have really stiff upper backs. Their thoracic spine is like mm. curved forward and stiff, and their overhead reach is really poor as right. a result, their overhead right. shoulder mobility. And that really affects their ability to keep their like chest against the wall on vertical faces, mm. on front on climbing. Right. Uh, um, the steeper it gets, the the more you can hide behind poor flexibility. Mm-hmm. So moonboarding or like anything steep, you can have terrible shoulder mobility because your hands are basically in front of you, and poor hip mobility, and get away with it. Yeah. But as soon as you get onto like tech vert ground, yeah. where uh, where you can like climb like a you know like a <laughs> crab, that's when you, that's when it really shows up. Like your yeah. ability to keep your elbows and your shoulders behind your chest and keep your chest against the wall that's really important and obviously with your hips like being able to get your knees as far apart as possible is key and, and i think it's a, it's a funny one my flexibility is not great uh, particularly my hip flexibility like my side splits um, uh, is pretty poor and always has been mm. and and i've done an enormous amount to work on it and literally never increased my side splits more than about five centimeters and given myself like tendonitis in the process of overdoing it mm. so um I, yes so I would say there's this you know you've got to play the cards you dealt in terms mm. of in terms of uh your joint design and layout and so on, but it's totally it's worth exploring yeah. uh yeah, so I would encourage people to work on hips i think the most most folk I find for whom it's really limiting are older folk who have spent a lot of time um in the mountains running or walking mm. um or cycling, so they've got stiff. Hips, right. basically they've got a good up and down movement of their of their legs so they can high step reasonably but they can't get in prize their knees apart mm-hmm. from each other uh, into like a frog position uh, and sometimes older folk there they've lost strength at the end range so that's a problem so 50s and 60s and above sometimes they can't lift their lift their feet very high either, they can't high step very high so I uh, as folk get into that kind of age category gear, there's more and more I look at with them in terms of regaining lost flexibility, so it's not some kind of mega range of motion you're looking for. it's mm. just feet that bend so they can smear. Right, I get people yeah. with really stiff feet, and they you know they can't bend their feet, and that really affects their ability to smear. they're practically front pointing oh, right. and then <laughs> um yeah, and then they can only lift their feet to like the height of the knee on the other leg right okay. um and that starts to dramatically limit things yeah really yeah
0: yeah so apart from flexibility and then i guess we can talk about movement drills and stuff you know what can people do to improve their technique
1: what can they do um i would say the the number one thing you can do is you can pay more attention to how you move (laughs) that's basically (laughs) like that's that's the number one um the drills and the various exercises I can recommend people do uh, all, all, they all hinge upon your ability to attend to your own movement. That's like the fundamental. So if nothing else, then devote some time in your climbing to just observing yourself moving as you move and asking questions and just being curious about what you're up to and why your arms and your legs are doing what they're doing and maybe experimenting with doing something else instead and you can learn a great deal from your own body I think by doing that that's that's an amazing source of feedback your body and, and most people aren't getting that feedback they're not the feedbacks are there but they're not tuned into it if you like so they don't know what's happening what's not happening and without that kind of feedback and review tool it's very hard to change how you move
0: yeah totally and I think of so part of my job is like helping people remove distractions of where their attention has gone to you know because I think a lot of people who either have got fear of falling or fear of failure or general performance anxiety their attention is somewhere else and that's why it's not with the feedback that they're getting from their body yeah um do you have any kind of tips for how to focus your attention in that way or where you focus your attention I mean are are you getting people to sort of climb and just try and be in their bodies a bit more but then also reflecting it off like reflecting about it off the rock or do you have a, like a specific process of how to get people to be more aware of the movement
1: i think i have a range of specific processes my my results with getting people to like have a general thing like just be in their bodies more and tell me what they notice isn't that successful really unless they're already pretty attentive and tuned in in mm-hmm. which case they can pluck out all these little details So I tend to direct their attention to a specific part of their body. So I'll give them a task, which is very much like, you know, do this easy climb. um, And when you come down, tell me how many breaths you took. Um, Something like that. And then they have to give, and they they probably have to give all their attention to that one thing. And then we might get them to climb it again and ask how many times they repositioned a foot. Uh, Maybe just one of their feet to make it a bit easier so it's it's giving it's directing their focus i guess and uh, and then sometimes they have a result they weren't expecting and they're like oh wow i uh, you know i i held my breath for the first seven meters of that climb (laughs) and then i was really pumped and then they you know and then they go away and they go oh i've realized now that actually i do that on every climb and i don't need to be fitter i need to Breathe while I climb. (laughs) (laughs) Had people say that, so yeah. yeah. So it's it's like it's starting the investigation for them really, and just directing them a little bit from what I can see into investigations that I think will lead to good results.
0: Yeah, I think that speaks to a kind of a general trend in climbers in amongst climbers that we don't we don't really practice climbing. You know, other sports. Say you do football. You don't just go out every time you play football and try and win a match. You do drills, you know, you really hone your kind of your shooting technique or your dribbling. I mean, I'm not a football expert, but I'm (laughs) sure there's lots of things, you know, you must spend a whole day, you know, really, really just like shooting like thousands of goals or whatever. Right. Yeah. So um, it's this weird thing that we have as climbers where we want to perform all the time. And it's to the detriment of practice, right? And so what you've described there is sort of, you know, instead of someone just trying to climb their best and their hardest when they go up the route, they're actually practicing something. I mean, do you find it difficult with the people you work with to kind of switch that up and say, okay, actually, right now, don't worry about getting to the top of this route. Actually, we're doing something different right now.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely people default really quickly to, you know, get to the summit, plant a flag kind of attitude, um, amazingly quickly, even when you've been banging on about technique for like two hours, <laughs> they will still do it. So, so I, uh, yeah, I give them very specific tasks that, that make that topping out goal. Um, so arbitrary that, um, that, uh, there's no motivation to focus on it. And I, I do have to manage that quite closely. Um, and quite often people, you know, I'll give them a task such as the ones I mentioned earlier and they'll drift from it back to getting to the top of the route mm-hmm. and then come down and not be able to answer the questions I have for them about mm-hmm. that. So then I'll be like, okay, so let's, you know, what happened? What, where did you stop noticing? Mm-hmm. Uh, let's do it again. Uh, and um, yeah, essentially revisit the same task until they can actually keep their attention on right. what I'd like them to. Yeah yeah and i tend not to do any of my skills kind of drills and exercises if i'm doing them indoors i tend not to do them on a graded climb right because as soon as you put someone on the green route Mm. they just focus on using the only the green holes and getting to the top without sitting on the rope so you just do
0: rainbow or something then yeah yeah.
1: so uh, i'm a massive advocate of rainbowing I'm doing it constantly and and it's a hard sell you know people are like well i'm too good for rainbow you know like well, they I can't get, I do this get worried what my... people
0: will think as well, don't exactly. they yeah.
1: Well... <laughs> yeah, yeah, whereas basically when I was injured with my shoulders, I spent like four years rainbowing on auto las,
0: yeah
1: uh, every winter, um just um like working on drills and working on my skills, yeah. yeah yeah
0: I think um indoor climbing walls because you get the specific feet, it's hard to carry that outdoors when there's you know fifty options of where to put your foot, yeah, do
1: yeah. you
0: um do you, do you find any issues of, of transferring stuff learn inside to outside you know have you got any other tips other than rainbowing to help that
1: um i think um the main one is rainbow particularly rainbowing feet i would not so bothered about rainbowing hands like you mm-hmm. can easily raise the difficulty of something you're, you're working on indoors by following a specific grade for hands but rainbowing of feet is really good because it it recreates the decision-making process you have outside, mm. which is like you look down and you have 50 options yeah. instead of having two or three. And you have to choose the ones which suit you personally and your hip flexibility and your balance and yeah. your size, which is very different to indoor climbing. So I think Rainbow for Feet in particular, I think super, super useful indoors for acquiring the same decision-making skill that allows you to climb well outdoors. Um, other things for outdoors, I think indoors, um, there's a few things, but I guess matching in terms of your general practice i'd say trying to match the style of climbing and the terrain you climb on indoors to what you aspire Mm. to outdoors so if the wall's getting steeper and steeper and you're throwing between massive brightly colored blobs it's like ask yourself like whether that's what's happening to your goals (laughs) or not (laughs) because you might be drifting you and your goals might be diverging yeah 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 Yeah. and uh yeah i I commented recently I, i had a kind of posted a, a little while back on instagram about you know th- this kind of this said principle specific adaptation to imposed demand um and asking like are you are you training for font on a moon board you know um, <laughs> <Yeah>. it's like <laughs> what's going to happen to you yeah. so um yeah i would always encourage you uh if you've got a clear idea of what your goals are outdoors to look at the shape of the terrain that you're on indoors and give greater weight to the terrain that is Better, you know, more more closely matches your goals. You know, if you're if, you're, if you've got trad on site goals, then don't get too tied up in like getting really good at dinos and com style bouldering, but do get focused on tick tacking up vert um, and slabby ground um, and climbing front on, which is often yeah. what's required on those sorts of holes.
0: Yeah, and what would you say about a big? Be- you know, how how differently would you coach a beginner? versus an elite climber and sort of how in what different ways would an, a beginner approach working on that technique and developing that technique versus an elite climber who would maybe have to retrain an ingrained movement style
1: yeah um i think for a beginner it's just like it's an exciting time and you're going to progress whatever you do you know mm. uh, and i guess that goes two ways you're going to progress If you do stuff badly as well, um, it's just worth bearing in mind at the beginning. It's an amazing opportunity to, you know, bank the right skills and invest in your skills that are going to serve you really well for the rest of your climbing career. If you do it right, they're going to mean you have a more steady progression up the grades, you get injured less, you can climb, you can adapt more easily to different rock types, different styles and different disciplines. So with a beginner, I would just give them a really kind of a broad range of two or three really basic, um, drills which encourage them to be really balance led in their decision making so they're really good at always finding the most balanced positions on the rock really Mm -hmm. um and for most people that's about bringing the level of hand eye coordination they've got to their feet so Mm -hmm. they have equally good foot eye coordination is what you'd like or what i'd like ideally Mm -hmm. and they you know and because of everyday life tasks we're really good and dexterous with our hands relative to our feet quite often when we come into climbing unless you come from a background of dance or something which is very foot movement focused Um, yeah it will be focused around the feet and around finding balance Um, and just getting into a kind of reflective practice from from early on really so questioning technique and being engaged with it and listening to your body and watching other people and comparing them and experimenting that'll be my kind of start ideal start place i guess with beginners with elites um it's a much more about looking at the whole picture of all their climbing uh, and all their skills and then uh, kind of prodding and probing different areas of this massive skill set that they've built up and is kind of deeply ingrained and Mm. um and looking for areas where they look dramatically different to um or significantly different to other elites mm. and the the difficult bit is untying like what's their unique climbing fingerprint uh from where could they improve because mm. it, you're going to like be constantly doing a little dance between the two things and uh, like you for example with your super bendy hips like it will mean that you climb front on a lot more or maybe front on on steeper terrain where most people would start to switch side on you'll be able to maintain a better better balance front on later into that steep terrain because you can keep your hips closer to the wall mm. um so it's, it's kind of figuring out things like that like is that a, a bad habit that hazel would benefit from changing <laughs> or is that hazel like maximizing mm. this asset which is the bendiness of her hips
0: yeah and you know it was weird like in my, in my climbing career like um i've definitely put attention to kind of at some stage i can't remember when of like really twisting more and learning to flag more and and that kind of thing you know um and i think i don't know what you you think about this sort of thing but i've really found that climbing on different rock types has forced those changes uh you know i used to be sort of younger more kind of vert stuff although i did do some indoor bouldering as well which probably really helped but then going to Europe and sport climbing and you're doing two furry routes and all of that, it's like, oh, actually, I'm going to have to properly change my style to fit this rock type.
1: That's the thing, I think, and what what you want from the elite is you want a super adaptive climber. So if they do adapt, you know, if you adapt to you know, long, continuously overhanging 2 roots and you start twisting and drop kneeing and all that, then it's like, it's great. If you tried to maintain like a go-garth technique there, we'd, we'd be mm-hmm. a bit more worried. And likewise, you know, going out to Yosemite and learning to jam and all that. Yeah. And I think it's, it, it's a kind of hallmark of elite climbers that they're really, really adaptive. So normally um, they're, pretty, they're pretty good fun to coach in that respect and that mm. you can give them little bits and they will go away and reflect quite deeply on them because they've got so much existing skill mm. to compare them to and then they'll adapt their climbing accordingly and it, will, it won't be a dramatic change typically at that level it'll be like little additions to what's mm-hmm. already a huge like reservoir of skills they've got and they're just dropping a few more in um, and just asking yeah. the right questions about the right bits
0: yeah, yeah and I think maybe with elite climbers it can it's maybe not even that they'll change their style that much or learn anything that new but it's almost like I think a lot of elite climbers are still quite distracted, so kind of learning just to bring their attention a bit more, you know, because the subtleties of climbing are kind of infinitely complex, right? Yeah. You know, and as soon as yeah. you get into like red pointing at your hardest ever level, it's like just having your hips like half a centimeter to the right or flagging just a tiny bit more you know can make the, the, all the difference yeah definitely. but I think a lot of people may be stuck in their heads a bit too much aren't going to notice those differences yeah um and especially with when they're distracted by the whole oh I'm not strong enough to do this move and I know that that's limited me in the past where I've gone oh well, I can't hold those holds or I can't make that yeah. that span, yeah, you know, yeah. because that's sort of something I've identified a bit more with. Um, but then, so what's really helped me is bouldering, is sort of sitting under a boulder and going, you know, all red pointing as well, and just really knocking your head to the wall and getting that real problem-solving mindset and yeah. kind of like properly getting into the subtleties of movement. Um, so yeah, I guess like, when would you recommend people start bouldering or red pointing or to develop their movement and get into those subtleties
1: um i think when they when they want to <laughs> um yeah it's got to be motivation led really i think with bouldering you've got to you've got to approach it with a lot of curiosity otherwise you're gonna have a few goes at something trying it the same way and then bin it and try something else and um the boulders you know the successful boulders take a very curious approach and they stay curious even when the doors open to like oh wow i've done all the moves i think i can mm. get this this my project ticked they don't it there's a risky there's a tip risky point there where some intermediates and and uh novices like switch into like siege mode where they just mm. try what they've what they've learned so far and apply it over and over again and they stop being curious so they start reflecting yeah and then their ego gets in there and they get frustrated yeah. that they can't do it and I think you've got to stay curious and um, keep questioning even when you think you've got all the moves perfect still keep questioning and trying weird mm. things and the number of times when I've been sure I've got the moves dialed and then I've decided to try some really weird beta that I yeah. that I thought of in bed you know <laughs> and and then <laughs> and then I get there and and it f- and it works, and it's actually easier than what I was doing before. The number of times it's happened is, you know, it's, it serves as a repeating lesson that it, I've got to stay curious and I've got yeah. to keep questioning, all the way through. And there's no point at which, I, it's dangerous to make that assumption of like, yeah, I've got it dialed now. I just need the right conditions or a bit, you know, some yeah. more finger strength, or a bit better rest or whatever, and then I'll do it. Yeah. Like that may be the case, but I would still maintain the curiosity the whole way through. Yeah. And that's what I've tried to build in elites really is just checking that they've got that curiosity and that they mm. don't drop it at some point in in the in the kind of urgency of trying to get something climbed.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point actually. Uh I I almost think that route climbers might be better at that because obviously you might have worked out all all the best ways of doing the moves, but then you on a send burn, you get there pumped and you realize it wasn't the best way and that actually you need to do it even more efficiently because you're too pumped do you know what I mean? yeah yeah as so it's like constant adapting and, and tweaking of movement to make everything more efficient when you're pumped
1: yeah certainly there's a bit there's a there's a bigger need on route climbs to climb easy moves more efficiently mm. because relative to a boulder problem you know the moves are relatively re- relatively easy um it's just a lot more of them so yeah you know it's that that puzzle of like, well, these are moves, certainly for me as a boulderer, when I get on a rope, uh I can do all the moves on these problems relatively quickly, normally um but you know, can I link them no chance yeah. until i until I've got it all really efficient, so for me, it's really like well, there's any number of ways I could do these moves, and I can just yard through them if i if I go off the bolt, but uh I need to find like even though they're well below my boulder again, I need to find the most efficient way because the cumulative effect is the thing that costs me and stops me climbing it Yeah. Um, rather than actually i can't do this move or, you know it's yeah. not that, that's not that sort of issue so moving really economically on moves you can already do i think is really important and people often don't really value that they think oh if no. i can climb that grade then i'm doing it the best way and i'll move on to a higher grade
0: yeah no for sure see that and um, i think something that ties into that is I think you mentioned this in your book you know and, and i think this is why i love climbing so much as well is that you have to be relaxed in supreme effort you know you yeah, have to yeah. find this way of of you're part of movement efficiency and it's so tied to kind of mental stress as well um but you know you have to be able to be as relaxed as you possibly can be and then try as hard as you possibly can yeah, yeah. and in the space of even a boulder problem you might be moving between relaxation and tension and effort um multiple times yeah even and then so on a route it's you know tens of times or hundreds so um can you speak to that a little bit
1: oh yeah definitely i I can't remember what i called it in the book it was something like the the maximal relaxed effort paradox or something (laughs) i can't remember i came up with a strange term and then forgot it but um (laughs) Yeah, it's a classic example of when you see it done you recognize it because it's someone in flow. Um you know, it's if you watch an Olympic event and 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 someone is uh, you know, absolutely thrashing everyone else in the event, it's the person that looks most relaxed. Mm. You know, when you see an amazing performance in any sport, it's the most relaxed person. It's mm. if they if it looks hard work, then they're probably um not going to win, you know, against mm. their competitors. So I think that that's the kind of that's the 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 like magic thing we're all chasing really is like those moments of like um, where your mind essentially is relaxed, even if your body, you know, can't relax because of the difficulty of the moves. But your mind is super relaxed and that allows you to only just recruit, you know, the number of fibers you need for every move and the number of antagonists. And if you watch a novice, you know, pulling on the same holds as someone more experienced, they can be really strong. Um, but they have to pull so much harder on the whole mm-hmm. just because their body doesn't really yet know how to dial it back so mm-hmm. it starts by applying all the force available just in case and mm-hmm. then as you become more economic it starts to dial back the amount of effort it puts in and if you watch an elite particularly an elite older climber so someone maybe in their 40s or 50s um, who's maybe not an, in at their kind of like famous pro, pro climber status anymore but they're they're more approaching the level of skill that's required to to be an elite golfer mm. uh, which is very skill focused and less physical so so it naturally tends to attract older uh older athletes and at that level their movement economy tends to be like incredibly incredibly high mm. and they can just climb stuff unbelievably easy <laughs> unbelievably easily and you can do exactly i've you know i've watched people do this and i've copied exactly their beta and it's just so hard for me mm. to do the same stuff as them and i'm just thinking I'm probably strong without them as well, you know, when they're in their fifties. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's just amazing, just the movement economy kind of they've
0: got. Yeah, it's sort of like you find those people walking around the forest of Fontainebleau, don't yeah. you? Like
1: the classic blouse <laughs> yeah, <you>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, and so so that sort of plays in a bit to um stress and attention and um tension, um and there's a there's a bit in your book where you sort of get people to actively kind of relax their tension in yeah, their body. Yeah. Yeah. Um to be got what's a like a good drill to kind of get people more in tune with the tension in the body and and getting them to relax a little bit more.
1: Um I think the classic the what the one I really like is 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 one I've stolen from um, from uh, from therapy which is uh, called progressive muscle relaxation. So if you google that You'll find all kinds of uh, exercises to do with that, and the classic way it's used in therapy is that you um, you lie on the floor and you tense and then relax different muscle groups. People will be pretty familiar with it. It's used a bit in yoga, body scans. It's sometimes referred to. Um, so it's a good exercise just to just to tune you into your body because what you're really doing when you're when you're checking in with tension, is you're trying to improve your like awareness of your body and your, your kind of movement literacy if you like as well. Um, So you can take that progressive muscle relaxation thing and you can do it on the wall. And that's that's essentially what I recommend as an intro in the book. And you just pick a muscle group that you think may be excessively tense when you're on the wall, or maybe carrying kind of tension you don't need up the climb. And you um, pause every few moves and you tense those muscles as hard as you can for like five seconds. So, for example, a, a good one to start with is your calf muscles. So climb an easy route. If you want to lead, I would do this each time you get to a clip. I would pause, tense your calves as tight as you possibly can. So you'll be going up onto tiptoe. It's pretty uncomfortable for about five seconds. And then you relax them as much as you can. Um, And we we have this relaxation response, which is exaggerated after high tension. So that's why we do the tensing. And... Once you have a feel for them as relaxed as they are, so your heels will have, you would have gone from tiptoe all the way down to having your heels really, really low, probably underneath the level of your toe on the holds. Then you kind of have reference points, physical reference points in your mind for what like a 10 out of 10 is for tension, what a zero is. And then you can essentially reflect after you've done that a few times on your way up a route and be like, okay, so would I recognise if my calves were like a six out of 10? Um, and be able to dial them down to a two at any point on a climb. Because if there's tension building there in their calves and we haven't noticed it, um, the net effect is that it it kind of feeds into our anxiety senses, if you like, which which start to get worried because it feels like we're on tiptoe, which is a bit of a threat response. And eventually our calves just get really tired and we get that Elvis leg thing, the the jiggling leg going on near the top of a climb. And when you get that, that's the cumulative effect of standing on tiptoe on really tight calves for like 15-20 minutes um, and it suggests that that's happened without you knowing it's even happened and mm-hmm. if you knew when they got tense and you had a technique for relaxing them then they would never reach that point where they blow up and start jiggling and you have to shout at them all that that happens mm-hmm. <laughs> on on long slab mm-hmm. routes and that sort of thing so um Yeah, you can do that tensing and relaxing thing as an investigation just to find out where you hold tension and how it feels to fully relax. I'd recommend trying it with your calves. I'd recommend trying it with your neck and shoulders, um, with your arms, like tensing around the elbows and gripping really tightly and then Mm -hmm. relaxing, and with your jaw as well. So Mm -hmm. quite a lot of people carry all their hopes and dreams in their jaw, and when they (laughs) get stressed, their jaw, you know, they get the overbite or the gurn, and the jaw goes really, really tight or the neck goes really tight so knowing how it feels when it's tight and knowing how it feels when it's really really relaxed is really useful mm-hmm. uh, and then you can that paves the way for you recognizing that and taking conscious control of it mm-hmm. um, and that can have a really profound effect on on your stress levels on
0: yeah yeah, attention is one of those weird things that's like the breath there's an automatic response yeah. intention but then it's also you can con- consciously control it as well
1: yeah absolutely
0: um, so yeah let's 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 talk about breath how much does that fit into your movement coaching and what are some some drills or some tips that people can use to use breath to help them move better
1: um breath fits in there a bit but i think the difficulty with coaching with breath is it's really hard to observe people's breathing mm. I don't know if you find this as a coach it's yeah. hard to observe it when they're climbing
0: yeah I mean because I use breath in the full practice yeah, drills yeah. and um, yeah I've, I've noticed that people aren't breathing deeply then it's almost like the tension in their shoulder is the indicator that they're not Yeah, breathing that's de- it it's sort of come everything comes up a notch doesn't it when you yeah. breathe in your chest
1: yeah there's a few signs but I think the bottom line is for me I have to use a lot of questions Mm -hmm.
0: to extract
1: information about breathing from people, which depends on their awareness, Um, you know, how well they can answer the questions and how accurate they are. Whereas with other movement types, I can see much more clearly what's going on. Um, With breath, it's, you know, as you say, there's elevated shoulders are a bit of a sign or there's just like significant gasps at various points (laughs) on the climb because they've been holding their breath for a while. Uh, if you're side onto them, you can sometimes see people's facial expressions, and that gives you a clue as to what's happening with breathing. Um, and sometimes people's posture just mm-hmm. gives you a bit of a clue as to what they what they default to with their breathing. So um, and and how much they how heavily they're breathing when they come down from the root. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tend to use a lot of questioning to fill in the gaps on that really, uh, with folks. In terms of breathing practice, I think there's two approaches I take. One is about breathing to help manage your kind of state, your your state in terms of arousal or anxiety. Um and then it's about purposefully using your breathing to kind of dial things down or dial things up um, in terms of how excited you are and how psyched or how chilled and relaxed you want to be. So um that comes down to using tools from breath work really. So you know there's lots of there's lots of super cool disciplines out there that have good quality breathing at the center of them often folk are already familiar with things like yoga or tai chi or breathing meditations that sort of thing so i'll use that as a reference point for them um and then it's building that into a useful tactic they can have on a route so it's pretty pretty hard certainly i find to get your breathing really nice set off on a route and carry on breathing really well (laughs) on a hard route (laughs) like for me certainly my attention just rapidly diverts to like Mm. you know not falling off um so I can set off with a good intention. But really what I need to do is I need to have a breath routine I can return to when I get to spots where I can shake out or clip or relax or something like that. Mm. Or on a, you know, a boulder problem, it might be where I can lose, I can afford to spare a little bit of tension because I'm on a better hold. So that allows Mm. me to take a deeper breath where, you know, I might essentially have my core clamped like a corset for tension other parts so i can't actually breathe Mm. with my diaphragm for example i can just breathe costally through my chest um so yeah so i work with folk using using it to manage their excitement and to like dial their dial their nerves down normally um or to ramp them up before a single very hard move Um, and that's the kind of bigger picture breath work i do and then the details would be for individual moves so we look at how individual hand moves compare when you exhale during them, when you inhale, when you hold breath with full lungs or you hold breath with empty lungs, because it all mm-hmm. has a profound effect on how much um, tension you can kind of in intra, intra-abdominal pressure, I think it's the fancy term, but essentially mm-hmm. how much tension you can maintain through your core. And having a tense core can be really, really good. You know, if you're going to lift a heavy weight, that's mm-hmm. what you want. But also it really inhibits things like the hips and shoulders, twisting independent of each Mm. other which affects the moves you can do Mm. so it might be really good for a really hard small hand move between small holds Mm. but hopeless for a big diner
0: yeah yeah it's interesting i use breath all the time to manage my mental state yeah and just this year really i started um kind of exploring it a bit more with individual movements and there really didn't seem to be a hard or fast rule you know, yeah. I thought that I would discover, you know, oh, well, you always move on your yeah. breath or something, you <laughs> yeah. know, but actually it was like, no, that just made that move way harder. But then this other move, it made it easier. And so then I was a bit like, oh, I might just breathe how I want to breathe and maybe not try to play with it too much.
1: And yeah. then we'd say to that. Oh, totally. I'd say I'd say breathe how you want to breathe, um, but just attend to it and see what you can mm. learn from it. Look for yeah. patterns. Um yeah, because there's a good chance you're doing it well intuitively. Um and there's a lot you can learn from your kind of intuit you know, what's going on intuitively in our bodies. Um you're right, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule. Um it's yeah, you, you can take some stuff from other sports, so like powerlifting has some great stuff about breath for, for generating maximal force and mm. for holding tension. Um but then It really depends if you need tension at the start, the finish of a single hand move as to where you want the tension. So if you're starting from a good hold and going to a poor one, you can actually afford to be really relaxed at the start, but you need to be tense to hold the end Mm. position. Whereas if you're going from poor holds to a really good one, Mm. it's the opposite way around. You need a ton of tension at the start, and then you can afford to relax as you hit the big hold at the end. Mm. So, yeah, it's hard to come up with um, any rules, really. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. fun too. Yeah, but the bottom line is if you can get better at breathing, breathing is a skill like anything else. You know, mm-hmm. for me, um, my yeah, I think my breathing initially through yoga improved and then through meditation. And mm. in the last year, I've done some um, free diving. And oh, yeah. yeah, it just really hit home when I was learning from some free divers. The, um, you know, the person who is the most relaxed is the best free diver. Yeah. And the, their ability to breathe is just incredible.
0: Yeah, I I know a freediver. I think he had the one of the records. There's all these different yeah, categories, yeah. isn't he? But, I think, yeah. but the, yeah, I think he had one of the records at one point And we we have not done anything extensive, but we went to a swimming pool once and did some breath holds and that yeah. kind of thing. And it's just mad what they can do. And yeah. it's totally obviously there's some physical element to it. And I think bigger people with bigger lungs generally do better, right? But mm-hmm. It's such a heady thing. I mean, it's it's mostly in the mind, isn't it? As soon as you start to have any kind of stress response, your body just wants to breathe, and the yeah. urge to breathe is so strong.
1: Yeah, and it burns you so much oxygen when it's a little bit more stressed. Yeah. Yeah, it has a massive impact on your breath hold times.
0: Yeah. Well, what else? Do you think we've covered everything?
1: Um. Yeah, I don't know what else you, you might might want to know about really yeah I've not mentioned any really specific drills I don't think um but I guess there's a lot of them and um, they all kind of they all hinge on um, that awareness thing I mentioned at the start really like yeah. they're what they're tools to uh help you direct your attention to your body and what you what you're doing in terms of movement and then uh then you can learn from that yeah
0: so I guess like people where can people find out about those drills um you've got your book are there any other resources that they can find from you?
1: Um, there's the book, um, and there is uh, there's a few. Th- I, c- I kind of post things like that on Instagram as well. So I guess if you if you look me up on Instagram, I think it's John Kettle Climbing. Um, then uh, yeah, I kind of periodically I post a mixture of things on there. Really, just basically it's just basically some of my musings and thoughts, So there's drawings and ideas and concepts and um, and drills on there as well. Yeah, yeah, but you can find the drills on YouTube. Um, there's videos of them all on there, but they won't really make much sense without reading the book, which kind of explains what they're for and what, how to use them. Yeah.
0: Okay, so you recommend again the book and Instagram, and then do you do workshops as well, where you can teach people in person?
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's my my job really is a, is a coach. So um, yeah, so I run, I can. Um, I do lots of one-to-one coaching that's most of what I do with recreational kind of adult climbers um, but yeah I also do a lot of coach education stuff as well for other coaches and um, yeah and I do you know and I routinely do group coaching as well so if there's a group of folk who are you know not particularly local to where I am which is up in the in the Lake District then um, I can come down to them and coach them as a group so I'm down to London a bit and North Wales and uh, sometimes out to Spain and that when uh, things are less restrictive.
0: Yeah. Which will hopefully be soon. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. That was really great.
1: Thanks, Aza. That was nice.
0: (laughs) If you enjoyed this podcast, please free, feel free to donate. You can visit hazel findlaycom and go to podcast and then you can click donate. The money just goes to Alex Dempsey, who kindly has been editing the audio of these podcasts for free. So, well, just the donations go towards him. But other than that, it's It's work, it's free labour from him so we're really thankful for his work but it would be a lot nicer if we could pay him. So if you feel like donating then that would be great. We've had offers to sponsor this podcast but we are keen to keep it free of advertisement. your listening enjoyment and also so that we can be free to talk about whatever we want and not be directed by sponsors. So if you like the kind of content that is free from advertisement and free from the push and pulls of what sponsors might want us to talk about, then please donate and then we can keep this work going. So hazel-finley.com podcast, donate. Thanks so much.